Great. Well, first and foremost, thank you all for joining us. Amazing to see so many of you here tonight. And I'm glad that I'll be able to record this and share this online for anyone else who isn't here with us this evening. My first question for this evening is whether or not our wider society has a problem with racism. Uh, once we've addressed that, I think we can move on to whether the church in particular has consciously or unconsciously adopted some of those issues, that problem, and a lot of our conversation will be more introspective, looking at whether we as a church, as resounding as the wider church, think we have an issue with racism, and if so, what we can do about it. Well, a few disclaimers to begin with. First is that this is a sensitive subject. Uh, it may well evoke strong emotional reactions for many. So I want to start by reiterating that this is a safe space. I want everyone to have a chance to voice their experiences, your thoughts, your opinions freely. I encourage everyone to listen well, speak with consideration, and allow ourselves to be open to voices from uh, every side of the conversation. It's a core value for me that we are open to all things and listen to all things. I think it's the only way we'll get anywhere constructive with this. So I want to start by challenging two potential preconceptions as we enter into this conversation. The first is that I'm trying to address the situation in the UK. Our media and social media can be flooded with horror stories from the US, where race relations has historically always been quite tumultuous. So I'll, for this evening at least, we'll try not to be too affected by any international perspectives, for the time being at least. Although when we look at the church as a global church, that'll be a more relevant voice, but Essentially, I don't want us to be influenced too heavily by the media and the news representation of uh, race relations and conversation there. I want to try and focus as far as possible on Britain, on our society here and our church here, because they're quite different contexts. Second preconception I want to challenge to begin with is that because things have been worse, things must be good. That would be a false presumption, I think. The social conversation around race has changed dramatically in our lifetimes. The Bristol bus boycott was in 1963. That was a local thing only 57 years ago, fighting against discrimination in employment in Bristol. Yet the experiences of the British BAME, which uh, a term I'll use quite a lot this evening, a term which is relatively limited, but I think is about as inclusive as I can afford with language, BAME being a black, Asian and minority ethnic community. Uh, and their experiences are still overwhelmingly of encountering discrimination, prejudices, and racism. I'm going to try as hard as I can not to try and speak on behalf of the BAME community, particularly in acknowledging my own privilege as a white person, uh, but I want to try and share some of the voices I've come across that I've read, that I've seen and listened to. So first and foremost, is race still an issue in society? Yes, is the short answer. Sadly, there are any number of examples which can make this case. In the current language of our social conversation, some statistics were released at the start of May, which showed that black people are twice as likely to die from COVID-19. I think there might, might be an update in those stats more recently, which are even worse than that. Contributing factors to this shocking statistics are the relative youth of the black population, the fact that it's more common for black people to live in urban areas and cities where the spread of disease is more volatile, and there's a higher proportion of the black community who live in areas of deprivation, which are more vulnerable to the spread of viruses. There was plenty of rhetoric at the start of lockdown, which proclaimed that coronavirus was the great equaliser. It affected the rich and the poor alike. We know that this is just not true. 
that the BAME community, as well as those in the working class, uh, are proven to be more at risk. British socio-economic structure has a lot to answer for. Again, I don't want to dwell too long on the situation in America, but we are also at risk of comparing ourselves and considering us not too bad. Our Prime Minister may have been openly racist on occasions, but at least he's not Trump, or we may have had the Bristol bus boycott, but it wasn't Montgomery. Living in Bristol, a city which is built upon the wealth accumulated through the intercontinental sale of black people, we can't avoid the past which has led us to where we are. We have memorialised, although that is less of an issue now, slave traders who called Bristol home. It's not difficult then to understand that we have come a long way, but equally it's more than likely that the nation's consciousness still harbours racial prejudice. Even in calling ourselves Great Britain, we allude to the fact that what made us great was our empire or the colonisation and imperial rule over a quarter of the earth. We mistook oppression for greatness. In the political sphere, there are currently 65 BAME MPs in the House of Commons, which is 10% of MPs, uh, and is up from 52 in 2017 and 41 in 2015. Though this is progress, 10% representation of a community which makes up 20% of the UK population means that there is still a clear issue of under-representation. Further along the chain is the House of Lords, which has 782 members, of which only 55 are from the BAME community. That's just 7% of the same 20% share population. And then, of course, the final nail in the political coffin shows that in the UK, since 1721, we've had 55 prime ministers. None of them have come from the BAME community. There is an issue, clearly, in the political realm of underrepresentation of a multicultural and diverse population. Now, I started to plan this Zoom Theology event about a month ago after Martin Bake actually led a, a small group session on race to provoke me to share some extra thoughts. And this was before the murder of George Floyd, before the recent protests, before all of that took place. And I think that means that we have heard and seen and come across and are presented with a lot more voices on this matter since then. More powerful than the statistics I shared and the numbers uh, which signify an issue, we hear the voices and the stories and experiences of members of the BAME community in Britain. Uh, on Sunday, that meant 10,000 people in Bristol joining hundreds of thousands across the world, speaking through protests and through sharing of testimony about the injustices of racism being experienced today. Our streets, our media and our news have been full of these voices and these stories of the oppressed. And all I'll say for now is this. We need to listen to those. If we haven't been persuaded or moved by the, the statistical analysis I just offered, then we need to listen to the cries of the hurting. They're as loud now as they have been in a long time. Our first port of call is to allow these stories to change our hearts and change our minds. To this point, I'd like to share a small clip with you. It's a couple of minutes long. It's a performance from this year's Brit Awards by Dave, who's a rapper, who spoke very clearly in the song entitled Black, about the experience of racism in Britain today. If you missed that at all, I would like to listen back to that. That's Dave performing Black at this year's Brit Awards. So moving on to our central theme for the evening then, does the church have a problem with racism? Do we mirror our society in our prejudices and our biases? Well, there's a number of places we could start. I want to particularly highlight the AME voices, but first, it is worth noting a statement that was made by Justin Welby, current Archbishop of Canterbury, on behalf of the Church of England's General Synod. In February, this was, this year, they unanimously voted to lament, they said, 
uh, and to apologize for conscious and unconscious racism encountered by countless black, Asian and minority ethnic Anglicans arriving in Britain from 1948 uh, in the Windrush generation and in subsequent years when seeking to find a church home in the Church of England. Archbishop Welby wanted to say that the Church of England was still deeply institutionally racist, that they had been a hostile environment and needed to become a hospitable and welcoming one. Author and pastor Ben Lindsay, who is black, wrote a book recently called We Need to Talk About Race and also did an article for the Church Times about why this conversation needs to be happening in churches. Uh, he talks a lot about his experiences of racism within British churches, particularly in white majority churches, although I think he highlights the difference between black majority churches. One particularly relevant point from the article is that he says, for racial reconciliation to be achieved, for radical solidarity to be realised in the UK church, black forgiveness of white racial wrongs cannot be the only answer. White confession and repentance must also happen. He also writes, there is a huge difference between churches being diverse and churches being inclusive. I think that's a particularly important point for us. Another rapper, Governor B, some of you might have come across, he performed at Resounds only a few years ago for a dynamic event, but he's also a kind of activist and public voice in the Christian church. He was interviewed this past Sunday uh, on HTB on their online service, and he was being interviewed about the relationship between church and race as his experience as a black British Christian. Uh, he said, I often hear that we want the world to reflect the church, but I've been wondering if the church is entirely ready for that. If the church isn't clear on its position on things like race, then we aren't ready for the world to reflect the church. He also shared a similar sentiment to Ben Lindsay, saying, if people don't really feel that like they can be themselves, then our churches are not multicultural, they're just multiracial. Something I'll go on to share about is the importance in this discussion about people feeling free to be whoever they are, to be themselves. There are so many other voices that I haven't got time to share this evening, but already a picture is beginning to form that shows that racism is present in our churches. In an interview this past Monday with Gas Street Church in Birmingham, Ben Lindsay talked about overt and covert racism. Overt being the structural inequalities in positions of leadership or access to training, among other things. But the covert is the more subtle forms of racism. It needn't even be abusive language or behaviour. There's more of a sense of being made to feel other, that one couldn't be oneself. Some people feel uncomfortable not knowing how to be around black people. So what can we do as, as the church and as a church? Well, I think that starts from an individual level. We need to educate ourselves. And I think that goes for everyone. That's, that's not just as white people. I think everyone needs to educate themselves, young and old. For many of us, this might be a process of re-education. We want any sort of long lasting change to address the issues and have a positive impact on our community. We have to listen, learn and read. We're subject to an incredible barrage of information and stories in the news, uh, a new tragedy every day. We've become accustomed to turning these voices out. If we become emotionally invested in every issue that we hear about, be it racism, sexism, poverty, war, corruption, we'd be overwhelmed. So we've learned not to listen, to hear but not process what we're hearing. We need to take time to listen actively, to allow ourselves to be impacted by the reality that we are blind to. Cries of our neighbours that for too long have been ignored and dismissed. Now's the time to begin to pay more close attention. But what about us as a church? Well, this is what we can we have a more practical conversation about in a minute. 
But some thoughts to start us off with. I think there are probably three key battle areas which should then shape and equip us as individuals within the church. They are hegemony, hermeneutics, and pedagogy. And for each area, I'll reference one particular writer who talks about that. So the first area I mentioned was hegemony, which means a dominant leadership or authority over others. I think in a church context, this means we need to start by looking at who occupies the positions of leadership and who is not represented within those positions. At Resound, we have a wider range of leadership positions in some churches. We've got the leadership team, wider leaders, the trustees, small group leaders. All in all, I, I tried to count earlier, I think that's about 36 different people at Resound who are in positions of leadership. And I think if I counted correctly, there are 19 women and 17 men in those positions, which is a great balance in the front of male and female leadership. But it's worth noting our leadership is not fully representative of our church community. All 30, what did I say, 36 different people are white people. Now, I'm not here to speculate as to what might be the cause of that. Uh, there are many factors, I'm sure, but it's worth being aware that currently BAME voices are not afforded the same positions as white voices are in the resound leadership structure. A black theologian called James Cameron Carter writes about hegemonic structures in his 2008 book, Race, a Theological Account. And he looks at how Christianity became westernised and kind of whitewashed. In an interview last year, he spoke about structures which say, this belongs to me and not to you. I think that's something that can be found quite often in Christianity and in the church, in the global church, but in the local church as well. It's easy for the majority to feel this is something that belongs to us and not something that is open and belongs to all. Only when the church as a whole begins to diversify its leaders and the Bible makes clear that all people are equipped to be able to lead. And certainly, Rizal, we want to share that there's a leadership of all people. Just looking at particularly at positions of leadership, official positions of leadership. When those are more diverse, we'll more clearly hear the voices of those who are currently being oppressed or those who are not currently being heard. Best thing about it is that a diverse leadership actually brings the best kind of leadership. A whole range of skills, abilities, passions and experiences. It's not about positive discrimination for the sake of it or a tokenistic gesture, but rather acknowledgement that we are stronger together and we're better when there's an eclectic mix of people in leadership. The second area I mentioned was hermeneutics, which is essentially biblical interpretation and the lenses through which we read scripture. Most of us will read the Bible in a particular way naturally. I say that with ease because it's more than likely that we've learned how to read the Bible in particular ways by others. That might be our parents or carers, our pastors, past or present, teachers, school or Sunday school, youth workers, friends. Our first lens tends to be that of our instructors, those who have shown us a way into reading the Bible. We take on their perspectives. Secondarily, we tend to read scripture through our own experiences, the way we see and experience the world, which again is shaped by many other people is also heavily influential on in how we approach God's word. A typical end of a hermeneutic journey could also include an awareness of context, particularly the biblical context. Stories in the Bible span over thousands of years, but we do, we speak quite often in the, in the talks and as we study the Bible about the context of the time, the history, the socioeconomic backdrop, the relationship between the Jews and Gentiles, the Pharisees and Jesus and disciples, all those sorts of things, we take those into account. Now, there's a, a writer called James Cone. James Cone is a theologian who specialises in black theology, which is uh, part of the wider liberation theology movement. 
This movement came about because the predominant voices in theology across history were white European men. And still, for the most part, this is true. Black theology seeks to approach God, the Bible, and Christian life through the lens of black experience. Cohen writes as an African-American, but there are many others from across the world who write from their own specific theological location. Now, James Cohen suggests that whilst white people might not be able to experience black experience, one option is for the white church to use a black hermeneutic, or more generally, uh, the hermeneutic of the oppressed, to consciously approach the Bible through a different perspective, to see the stories that we've read before, maybe, or approach stories that we haven't read before, not just through our own eyes or through the eyes of those at the time, but through those in our world who are in different positions, those who are not heard. We can develop this by studying with people from different backgrounds from us, people with different perspectives to us, by listening to and reading other perspectives, particularly in this instance, black perspectives. Once we've developed this hermeneutic, we might see the Bible differently and a truth can begin to speak to us that previously we've not heard. Final area then is pedagogy. This basically means approaches to teaching or methods of teaching. One seminal thinker in terms of pedagogy is Paolo Freire. Some of you might know his work, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. He discusses in that education as a means of achieving freedom. He looks at how teaching methods, which treat learners as passive, silent recipients of knowledge, uh, as a means of oppression, particularly for the poor and the powerless. Freire's radical ideas offer a new pedagogy where dialogue is a central part of teaching. Teacher and student are equal and every person is enabled to develop a sense of self and fulfil their right to be heard. Naturally, the majority of official teaching at Resounds is done in the traditional manner, a speaker bringing a message to a congregation who listens as students. And I'm not suggesting that this necessarily has to change, but I do think we need to provide more forums for discussion and conversational learning. This provides everyone with a platform and a voice, particularly it lifts those who otherwise would not have a chance to share. Those who don't normally have a voice can offer their thoughts and experiences, and we can all learn from those. This is why small groups are so important, um, as well as evenings like tonight or our discussion evenings, where we can provide all people with a voice. I want to just finish with a quote Ben Lindsay also finishes his Church Time article with. It's from St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, who was a black North African bishop. He says, hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger that things are the way they are and courage to see that they do not remain as they are.